Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Somebody asked me about the uh, lighting of the candle and bowing that I do uh, in the morning and the evening. It's, uh, it's been such an honor for me to get to meet with all of you and talk and hear about your practice. It's, uh, it's a remarkable thing to me, the way this path unfolds and the power, the transformative power of presence, the, the liberating potential of awareness. And I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to come in contact with these teachings at such a young age, when I was 19, and to have had the circumstances and privilege in my life to allow me to study and practice them so intensively for so many years with so many incredible teachers. And so this, this statue behind me represents for me a connection with all of those who have come before, beginning with the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who lived nearly 2,600 years ago. who walked the plains of India for 45 years teaching. And uh, it's it, the record of the, the early Buddhist teachings are some of the uh, most detailed historical documents we have about ancient India, the accounts of the Buddhist texts. So he was a real person that lived and walked And so there's, there's a sense of, of respect and um, real gratitude and devotion, not only to the Buddha, who really showed the way, um, but to all of my teachers who, who, uh, who I do my best to, uh, to do right by in my own practice and then in my teaching. And through our connection and our relationship now, you have a connection through me to each of those beings, to each of those people, all the way back to the Buddha. The Buddha said, if you want to pay respect to me, the way to pay respect to the Buddha is to practice these teachings. Those who see the Dhamma see me. Um, Ajahn Buddhadasa's monastery in Thailand, Swan Mok. He was another one of the great forest meditation masters and scholars, great scholar of the last century. He didn't have any Buddha statues. No Buddha statues in the monastery. People would come and they would want to donate statues to the monastery. And he would say, do you want to bow to something? Bow to that rock. You see that rock there? That's the Buddha. Bow to that rock. Bow to that tree. That's the Buddha. Bow to the tree. So these teachings are evident everywhere. They're, they're the, the natural order of things that everything changes moment to moment. It's just this 
endless flood of change. Everything is in flux. The, this, this practice is called insight meditation, vipassana meditation. It means to see clearly, to have insight. And an insight is a truth that we all share. It's not personal. It means it's something fundamental. An insight is into a truth that's fundamental to all of life, to all living beings, to how things really are not how we think they should be or how we want them to be. And that's not just our preferences I'm talking about. I'm talking about a more subtle layer of expectation that we believe that things are solid and stable when they're really not. That we think that things can give us a certain kind of lasting happiness or satisfaction when they can't. Or we think that we ourselves are somehow separate and independent of everything else in life when we're not. So this practice helps us to see more clearly. The reason we we take away all of the distractions and comforts and activities of our lives, including talking and reading, is to try to, to clean the doors of perception, as Aldous Huxley said, to strengthen the power of mindfulness and concentration so that our vision, our inner vision, becomes strong enough to see things clearly instead of through the filters of the past. The filters of the past that say, tomorrow I will be the same. I will be able to walk and breathe and eat without pain. Tomorrow, those I love will be here in a way that's not changing. And it's not easy. It's not easy to to come in contact with these truths, to see these truths, because there's something in us that wants life to be otherwise. This is... This is from a great sage, modern sage, maybe. I'll tell you his name after I read the quote. In my next life, I want to live backwards. You start out dead. (laughs) You get that out of the way. Then you wake up in an old person's home feeling better every day. (laughs) You get kicked out for being too healthy. You go and you collect your pension. And then when you start to work, you get a gold watch and a party on your first day. (laughs) You work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. (coughs) You party, you drink, you're generally promiscuous, and then you're ready for high school. (laughs) Then you go to primary school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a baby until you are born. And then you spend the last nine months floating in a luxurious spa-like condition with central heating, room service on tap, larger quarters every day, and then, voila, you finish off as an orgasm. That's from Woody Allen. (laughs) It brings tears to my eyes, though, because it's... uh, 
it's so true and it's, it's so tragic in a certain way, this life, the loss that we each experience, the loss of childhood, the loss of innocence, the loss of wonder. So I have a lot of gratitude, I have a lot of respect for this practice and for those who have come before us uh, because it's opened the door to understanding and living in a different way, in a way that I don't need to live life backwards in order to be happy. I don't need it to keep getting better and better in order to be at peace. I spoke yesterday about one of the maps that's been handed down, the map of the five hindrances, these things to watch out for that are part of the practice, that are part of the path. And tonight and tomorrow night, I want to talk about a different map that's also uh, comes to us from the Buddha. And uh, this is the map of the things that help us handle the hindrances and that actually um, support awakening. So they're called the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment. And when these are developed and present, uh, the hindrances are absent and the mind is peaceful. Practice starts to feel like it's happening itself when the seven factors of awakening are strong in us. They're, They're like incredibly powerful medicines that can heal. In the texts, it, it talks about when the Buddha was sick, he would ask his attendant to chant the seven factors of awakening to him. They were so uh, comforting and uplifting just to hear them chanted. The Buddha said that just as all of the rafters in the roof of a house, slant and slope towards the peak, so too all of the seven factors of awakening slant and slope towards enlightenment, towards liberation and freedom. So what are these seven factors? The first we've already been talking about, and that's mindfulness. Mindfulness plays a very central role in the seven factors of, of awakening. So the other, the other factors, there are three factors that are about arousing our energy, and then there are three factors that are about calming and tranquilizing our energy. And mindfulness helps to balance, to keep these in balance, to keep the factors that bring energy up and to keep the fa- in balance with the factors that calm and steady and stabilize the energy. And mindfulness also helps to develop each quality. I was saying a couple of nights ago that mindfulness is like a gateway wholesome state. It opens the door to all the other wholesome states. So mindfulness has the, um, the property of enhancing and amplifying these other factors, when we, when we bring mindfulness to them, they grow. It's like watering them. So the three energizing factors, which I'll speak about tonight, the first is investigation. The second is courageous energy. And the third is joyful interest. The three tranquilizing or calming factors are tranquility, this calmness, a quiet of mind, a quiet, calm mind. Concentration, a gathered and collected mind. The mind is is, um, whole. All of our energies have come together and are, and are uh, integrated with one another. And equanimity, a kind, of, uh, a kind of evenness, a balance, a dynamic balance that's cool and peaceful in the mind. 
So mindfulness is is so important. It's said to be like the warp of weaving with the seven factors. So you know when you if you if one weaves a carpet, you have the strings that go across, and then and then you weave the woof through them. Have I got that right? The warp is the ones that, that are there. Correct. I got them confused. It is. Thank you, Diane. It's correct. So the so the warp is like the foundation. You need the warp there, and then the weave, the, the the woof is what goes up and down and over it, that makes the actual pattern and the design and the the uh, the layer of the fabric. But the warp is what's underneath it, supporting it. So that's that's how important mindfulness is to the rest of the factors of awakening. The Buddha said mindfulness is essential. Actually, this is not the Buddha. This is in the commentaries. It said that mindfulness is essential in all things everywhere. It's like the salt in the curry. So this list is often talked about in a sequential way. One leads to the next to the next. And I'll speak about it that way because we exist in time, so one thing needs to come first. But in reality, we develop these often in conjunction at different times in different ways. I was speaking with one person today who was talking about feeling a lot of contentment. And so on one retreat, we might just be strengthening a sense of calm and tranquility in the mind. And on another retreat, we might be strengthening energy or investigation or at one period of the day and the next. So as you listen to these, keep in mind that they can come in any order and any one can be predominant at any different time. So the first of these is investigation. The Pali is Dhamma Vichaya. Dhamma means um, qualities or states, things, and Vichaya means uh, to, to, to tease apart, to, to come close and investigate. And this, this path, this practice is about seeing things clearly for ourselves. It's, uh, it's said to be inviting. That, that sense of, hey, check this out. Look at this. Come see. So there's nothing we have to believe. There's nothing to sign up for. It's just this invitation to look at our own experience. If you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. So Dhamma Vijaya is this quality of investigating, of looking closely at experience. It's like turning on a light in a dark room. And it takes us deeper into the moment. It takes us deeper into the practice to come close and say, what is this? What is this experience, this feeling, this sensation? What is this breath? One of the things that I like to do sometimes is to learn about animals. I saw the Jane Goodall documentary that came out recently. Beautiful, wonderful movie. And she spent uh, six months, her first time in this part of Africa, by herself, just, just observing the chimpanzees. In the first five months, she could hardly even get close enough to them to observe them. She would just walk out every day, try to find them, looking through a telescope and then observing them and drawing pictures and taking notes. And just so much patience, so much interest to just keep watching. Another researcher, a woman by the name of Cynthia Moss, who studied elephants in Africa, she said it took her 20 years to begin to understand how complicated they were. 20 years of just observing, watching. That's investigation. That's also a lot of patience. But this willingness to really study, to really look closely, it's that ability to see things fresh with the beginner's mind.
a genuine interest to really see it. And this genuine interest is about, as, as I've been talking about, it's about dropping, dropping into the non-conceptual part of our experience as human beings. We're trying to connect with what's really alive rather than, rather than a memory. If you think you know what the breath is, that's the past. What's it like to feel an in-breath without the word or concept of breath? What's it like to feel the sensations in your hand without the image in your mind of a hand? That's a memory that gets overlaid on top of experience. So we're, we're training the mind to, to taste experience as closely and directly as possible. And this requires a lot of humility. Again, as I've been saying, it requires that willingness to not know. What if I don't know what leg is while I'm walking? As soon as we think we know, we're not in the present. Because the moment is always unknown. Each moment is always new. My first teacher, Manindraji, always used to say, he would say to me, you are living mostly in the world of thought. Meditation is about experience, living in the world of experience, not the world of thought. We spend most of our lives living in the world of thought, of the past and the future, of planning and remembering, of our ideas and concepts of things, rather than the immediate experience of something. So as we train our mind as, the, as mindfulness and concentration develop, we're trying to sustain the attention in this direct moment-to-moment way, just, just for a few moments, just to get a string of moments together, to see things clearly enough. And when we do, something shifts. We can see, we, we experience something that Previously, we'd only experienced through the, con- through the concept directly. And when we can do this with one experience, with one sense door, the mind begins to understand it and can apply it to other experiences. I remember the first time I had a very clear shift like this. I was on retreat at IMS and uh, had come outside from a sitting and was standing in front of the main door. There's big pillars there. It was fall. Feeling the body. The eyes were closed, just standing and feeling the body. And the wind came. And I felt the wind. And then the mind was very mindful and noticed the experience, touching, coolness, soft, pressure, hearing, there's no wind. Where's the wind? There's just touching, softness, coolness, hearing. Wind is a story. It's a concept from the past. The mind shifts and it sees experience directly. It knows this is what's happening in this moment. And that experience, memory, puts it together and constructs it and says, oh, that's the wind. But it takes a lot of mindfulness, a lot of concentration to do that. But we only need to, it's only only a moment. It's just a few moments. The mind sees something and then, oh, it's different. So this is Dhamma Vichaya, looking really closely at experience to see what is it directly. 
as a deep and careful attention. When we have this kind of continual interest and attention, inclining towards looking deeply into things, it brings energy. It brings energy and it also takes energy. And this is the, this is the next factor of these arousing, energizing factors of awakening. And that's, uh, the Pali is virya, sometimes translated as effort or energy or heroic energy. I like the translation courageous energy because there's an aspect of courage that takes a lot of courage to keep showing up, to keep looking closely at the mind and our experience, to keep seeing the craziness in there. This incessant stream of thoughts and judging and wanting things to be different and not being good enough and struggling and exhausting. It takes a lot of courage to keep showing up, a lot of energy. So virya is this persistence, vigor, a gentle perseverance in things, this willingness to keep showing up with a sense of, of aliveness, of vitality. So this is an essential quality and often a misunderstood aspect, a misunderstood factor in the teachings that shows up again and again if you've studied it all or if in the future you study. In the, over time, the Buddha's teachings were systematized into various lists and templates because it was an oral culture, so they needed ways of remembering things. And many of the lists have this quality, virya, energy, in it the five spiritual faculties, the seven factors of awakening, the ten paramis. It shows up again and again and again. The, the phrase that, that comes again in the, in the texts over and over is one generates desire, one endeavors, one arouses persistent energy, upholds and exerts oneself. So there's, there's this sense of like, like, you know, like gear up, like, Get in there. So this path isn't just about not doing. It's not just about, you know, just just relax and don't do anything and just receive. But the, the, the issue is that in the West, most of us have certain cultural patterns around energy. We try so hard. We strive and we push and we force because we've been, we've been taught to, uh, to connect our sense of self-worth with what we can achieve or accomplish or create or perform. And so when our sense of value get, as a person gets tied to that, it creates a lot of tension. I better, I better get it right. You know, I better really do it well or... What's going to happen? I might be rejected. I might not belong. People might not like me. They might not. I might be outcast. You know. So for a lot of us, energy is actually we all have energy. It's innate, but a lot of it's about learning, learning how to have a balanced relationship with energy. How to not push too hard, on the one hand, and how not to totally slack off on the other. One of the analogies that's given in the texts is it's like tuning a stringed instrument. If it's too tight, you can't make nice music. The sound is shrill. But if the strings are too loose, you also can't play. It has to be tuned just right. And that's, that's, that's this factor of energy has to be tuned just right. And so, again, I've been, I've been pointing to this in the instructions. So the amount of energy that's needed most of the time in practice is just the amount of energy it takes to hear. It's a very light touch. But it's about sustaining that energy, this gentle perseverance, which requires a kind of courage to keep showing up. That, will, that, that energy, that perseverance and persistence doesn't come from pushing or striving. 
it comes from the heart. It comes from a willingness to be here. I'll say that again. This quality of energy, of gentle persistence, comes from a willingness to be here again and again. And when we're not willing to be here, that's okay. When it's too much, then we back off, then we rest, we take a break. The more you can trust the, the ebb and flow of your own heart, the, deep, the deeper you will go in this practice. The, the, the heart opens and closes. Just like night and day, just like the breath, just like the actual valves in the physical heart, the emotional heart and the, the, the spirit open and close. So we have these periods on retreat and in the practice where everything feels open and clear and bright and peaceful and something touches us and it's, ah, oh. and then we lose it. And we think, what did I do wrong? Oh no, we didn't, we didn't do anything wrong. That's the process. It opens and then it closes. It closes in order to, 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 to learn. That's the learning process. We open some and then we close to integrate, to remember. Something is being digested inside. So we have to, we allow that. If you try to pull the petals of a flower open, what happens? You destroy the flower. So let the heart close. Let it close. And then it will open when it, when, when it trusts us, when it trusts that we're not going to force it. So the willingness to be here, we just, we just do our best to show up. And when the heart says no, when it pulls in, when it withdraws, that's okay. Just let it, let it do that. And then when it feels safe, it opens up again. And then it just keeps going like that. And then every time we let it close, the next time it opens, if we're, if we're trusting it, if we're going with that process, then it opens more, it opens deeper. And then it closes again. So we learn, we learn this rhythm, and we learn the rhythm of our own energy. So you might find that, you know, the morning, your mind is really clear and present. And then the afternoon, you're just slogging through. That's fine. One of, one of my teachers who I've mentioned b before a couple of times, Michelle McDonald, she says one of the things she likes to say about retreat, she says, punch in and punch out. Just show up. Or like Joseph says, your job is just to sit and walk. I'm, I'm on a roll here. Or like Sharon says. <laughs> Sharon says, you can't do the practice and make it work at the same time. Just do the practice. So you see they're all pointing at the same thing? It's it just show up. When there's energy, there's energy. When there isn't energy, there isn't energy. You don't have to force it. You don't have to make it any different. You just show up in the way that we can. A retreat is a little bit like a triathlon. You need to pace yourself. It's not a sprint. I have bad news. They all know about the matrix. The blue pill and the red pill. I'm so sorry. You took the blue pill. There's no going back. This whole path is it's a marathon. It's a long distance run. You gotta pace yourself. So this is this is the quality of uh, 
perseverance, gentle, steady perseverance. It's a long, slow, steady burn. You can't stop being aware now. You can try. But if you're still here, and each of you is still here, you're not going to be able to stop being aware in your life. Even if you, even if you never sit again, you will not be able to stop being aware. It will return. Aware, mindfulness is too strong. It will come back. So the, this factor of energy, of virya, courage, gentle persistence, is a steadiness, so just this willingness to show up and to make an effort joyfully, willingly, not begrudgingly, not because I should or I have to or if I don't. That's not energy. Energy is that sense of yeah, okay. Let's give this a try. It's like like learning to play an instrument. I just signed up for a ceramics class. I'm so excited. <laughs> I took ceramics in high school and it's been like 25 years. I can't wait to get my hands in the clay and just have fun. And make mistakes. You know? And just play. It's that kind of energy to just say, well, let's just get in there and try something and see what happens. This willingness, this joyful willingness to just show up and see what happens. Sometimes it can be helpful with energy when we're not sure how to work with something in the practice to just ask what's needed here This is a way of bringing wisdom in to support the practice. What's needed here? Like, how much, how much energy is really needed? Often it's not that much. But to just ask, rather than assuming or pushing or shutting off because it's like, I just can't, I just can't. So, okay, well, what's needed here? Can I just be with this in a gentle way, in, in, a, in a quiet way? I don't have to be, you know, the mindfulness superhero. I could just be a little aware. So as these qualities of investigation and this gentle perseverance of energy gather with mindfulness, what can start to arise as a quality called joyful interest. The Pali word is piti. It's sometimes, sometimes translated as rapture. It's a it's it's rapt attention. It's that there's a there there can be there gets to be this this cohesiveness to experience that's engrossing. Our mind gets really kind of like in the zone and kind of locked into experience. We're really right there in, in, in a way that's captivating. It's like all of a sudden the breath becomes so fascinating or captivating. Or, or the taste of something, the sensations and the textures becomes completely captivating. This, this this rapt attention, this joyful interest in just being right there with the experience. One person was describing standing up by the fields and just this thrill running through the body. The attention was so captivated and connected. We're deeply connected with the experience in the moment. So this quality of joyful interest is... Uh, it's uplifting. It lets us practice with a light heart. We feel like the practice is carrying us along. We feel lifted or buoyant. There's, a, there's an ease and an openness that we can enjoy. 
So this comes from, from being with experience moment to moment, whatever is happening. So the shift to joyful interest is the shift from being focused on the content of our experience, the sense of uh, what's pleasant or unpleasant, and that mattering if it's pleasant or unpleasant, to this more natural yearning just to be with experience, whatever is happening. So there can be this quality of uh, deep connection and joy with a painful sensation in the body. It's not about having a pleasant experience, it's about this quality of an engaged relationship with what's happening. It's the knowing of what's happening that becomes captivating. The being with experience directly that holds the mind's attention. And whether it's pleasant or unpleasant doesn't matter as much. It's the knowing of the experience. Oh, this is fear. Wow. The body's afraid. It's trembling all over. And the heart's racing. Wow, the heart's really pounding. God, this is amazing. Fear can be totally captivating when mindfulness is strong. Experiencing it intimately. It's unpleasant, but that's not what's in the foreground. It's the awareness and the knowing of it, the connection with it, that's, uh, that matters. Sometimes this quality of piti is called the deep delight in the truth. A deep delight in the truth of our experience. We've, we've overcome to a certain degree our obsession with, with pleasure and pain, with, with what we want and what we don't want. And instead, we're, we're taking pleasure in the knowing of what's happening, the truth of experience, taking delight in that. So I'll, I'll tell you another story from that same retreat at IMS. Um, I've had various kind of health, chronic health issues on and off for, for 15 years. And one of them is a digestive disorder that can be quite uncomfortable and painful at times. And so on this particular retreat, this was before I had uh, really learned how to take care of my body and what it needed. I was trying, but it, was, it had just come on in the last year or so. And... Um, so one day after lunch, as it turned out, I had, I had eaten something that was not, uh, that had gone off and I didn't know. Um, but after lunch, I had gone back to my room and uh, all of a sudden I started having abdominal pain. And it was, it was pretty bad. And then it got real bad. And it was so bad, I, I, it, I was lying on the floor of the room. It was so bad that I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't move. I was just completely, like, on my back in excruciating pain, like knives, just, like, carving up my stomach, and just complete surrender. Just couldn't do it. And I was laughing because it was so intense. It was ridiculous. It was so unpleasant and intense. And the mind was right there, just <coughs> knowing the, the sensations, the stabbing, this, like gut-wrenching stabbing. It was so intense. And the mind was happy. It hurt like hell. It wasn't, it wasn't unpleasant. But the mind was so present, knowing the experience, not resisting it at all, just complete surrender, that there was joy. It doesn't make sense, right? To the logical mind. This, it's not about masochism. This is not about like, <laughs> inviting pain. But I'm pointing to the fact that we can have a very different relationship with experience than we would imagine or than we think. 
The Buddha said that this quality of joy is the gateway to enlightenment. It, it, it lifts us and brings us, uh, brings us right there to the experience. This quality of um, a kind of buoyant um, delight, uh, it can come from a lot of different things also. It comes, it can come uh, with an, uh, an awesome natural view or, or experience in nature, where all of a sudden we're awestruck and we feel like a a rush of, of pleasure or energy, that's that's part of it. It can come, uh, it can come from listening to the teachings. Sometimes you listen and something strikes you and you get chills all over and everything just kind of just sort of wakes up in this in this delightful, energized way. That's that's this quality of joyful interest. We feel uplifted. It can come in in reflecting on or contemplating. The, the Buddha, or the path, or the Sangha, or the lineage of practitioners and reflecting on all of the countless hours of practice that have happened for so many generations to keep this living insight and wisdom alive and passed down from person to person to person through generations. This, uh, this quality can then give way to a kind of contentment. So it needs to be balanced. The, the, this joy can also get out of balance where it becomes a, a kind of exuberance. We get over-energized and we start fantasizing about how we're going to explain the teachings to our husband or our wife or our kids or our parents and it's going to be so great and or we start giving dharma talks in our head because we're so inspired and it's so un, you know and we've, we've actually launched launched off we're no longer grounded in the present we start writing the the next book or doing the next creative project so this this uplifting joyful energy needs to be balanced with some of the with mindfulness and then with the calming factors, the tranquilizing factors, to actually be able to use it. When you look at a Buddha statue, the Buddha the Buddha's smiling, but it's a very subtle smile. It's like the Mona Lisa's smile. It's a very serene, knowing smile. There's a happiness, but it's a quiet happiness. So if we can stay with the, the joy, this uplifted, uh, engrossing attention, it can, uh, it can bring us into a very quiet place, a very still, quiet place. And this is what I'll start talking about tomorrow, this next phase of things getting quiet and still. So the whole process, the whole path, is a natural unfolding. It's like, a, it's like a tree. You look at an acorn, it contains all of the instructions for a massive oak tree. You just need the right conditions, the soil, water, and sunlight, the right temperature, the tree will grow. So that's what we're doing here in this practice is we're creating the right conditions for awakening to grow, for insight to grow. Those conditions being mindfulness, kindness, concentration, steadiness, and these other factors I've been talking about. Investigation, looking closely, courageous energy, this steady willingness to keep showing up. 
and endless quality of, of uplifted, wholehearted attention that, that, is, that can be engrossing in experience. And the practice is always just one moment. It's one moment at a time. It's just this breath. Just this step. I want to end with a quote, if I can find it. about letting things grow, just showing up one moment at a time. This is from Georgia O'Keeffe. She said, still, in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time like to have a friend takes time. So give yourself time. There's no rush. We're learning to be our own best friend in this practice. And we're learning to see. So I offer these thoughts for your reflection. Let's just sit together for a moment. Still, in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.